Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, good to catch up with you once again. I find myself actually really looking forward to these visits each week just for the perspective that you can can provide on a constitutional understanding of what is going on around us. And I guess we're, we're going to start with uh, with current events once again. Where would you like to begin today? Well, good morning, Brian. It's great to be with you again. And, you know, I don't recall a period in a long time where teaching the Constitution was as relevant to day-to-day events as it has been in these last several months. You know, we've been seeing the issues about the Electoral College, about whether the states or the federal government have the authority to set the times of elections and so on. That clearly is set to Congress. Congress can set the day of the election. But as far as the manner in which electors for president are chosen, we've seen that that rests with the state legislatures, that the Constitution expressly delegates that to the legislatures, raising the question whether or not governors or election officials or secretaries of state and the like can take away from the legislature the power that the Constitution delegates to the legislature. We've seen all of those issues. If there is a challenge to one of the state's electoral vote, if there are two competing slates of electors that have been chosen, or if some question whether or not the electors really represent what the actual vote was, We've seen that there is a basis in federal law that the Constitution authorizes, that authorizes one congressman and one senator to raise that challenge and then have it debated at each house separately. The ironic thing is that now there are some that want to sanction or censor or possibly even expel from Congress, particularly Senator Hawley of Missouri, who raised the challenge on behalf of the Senate, and Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama, who raised it on the part of the House. Over a hundred other congressmen joined him in this, but he is singled out because he spearheaded the effort. And yet, if we've been following what the Constitution says about this, it is very clear that he has not only a right, but also a duty to challenge in the way that he did. We've seen there was a question as to what the vice president could do. And there was a legitimate question raised as to whether he could simply refuse to accept the proposed electoral votes of states like Pennsylvania and Georgia and other states where the result was open to question, or whether he had to just let that be raised from a challenge on the floor and then let the House and the Senate deliberate on those challenges. He chose the latter, of course. And anyway, some thought he had the power to just simply reject it. I can only say an answer to that, that the Constitution itself and the federal statutes are both unclear on that question. But it may be that he followed the wiser course of action and not trying to exercise a power that very possibly he didn't really have. Then, after the events that took place on January 6th and the riot that took place in the Capitol building. Well, we have some that were clearly there for the purpose of disruption, 
perhaps some on the far left and some on the far right both, both of which had something to gain by plunging this country into disorder and creating a civil conflict that each of them thought they could win and take over with. But there were probably others that followed along just thinking that, well, the barricades have been removed, we're free to enter in. Now, if that's the case, those people may possibly have a defense to a charge of criminal trespass at the Capitol if they reasonably and in good faith believed that they had been invited to enter. But we do need to remember also that we read in the book of Exodus that do not follow a multitude to do evil. And you need to always be careful. There's a saying that a mob has no conscience. And once you start mob mentality, people can do all kinds of crazy things. So you need to keep your wits about you, even when, in fact, especially when you are with a crowd. And then, as a result of the things that happened that day, a second impeachment proposal was brought in the House by Speaker Pelosi and the House by a close vote with one ten rather liberal Republicans joining, the House voted to impeach President Trump a second time. We argued here that they had no grounds for doing so, that the president did not incite that riot at the Capitol, that in fact he had told his supporters to go there, in his words, peacefully and patriotically. And in fact, the rioting at the Capitol began a full 20 minutes before he finished his speech an hour and a half away. And furthermore, when President Trump became aware that this was going on in the Capitol, he issued a tweet urging his followers to stay home, or rather to go home. And so the possibility that he was guilty of any kind of instigating an insurrection, well, the evidence just doesn't support that. But the House went through with that impeachment. They didn't call a single witness. Trump did not have a lawyer present at the proceeding. There was nothing but a kangaroo court and a lynch mob by a crazed speaker who is motivated solely by hatred of President Trump. So now, as we are speaking here today, it is now in the Senate, and it was delivered to the Senate, I believe, last Monday, the impeachment papers, and they are preparing to present these impeachment papers, and my understanding is that the impeachment trial in the Senate will begin on February 8th, which means unlike the House, he is being given some time to prepare, and unlike the House, there will be both a prosecution and a defense raised. You might say that when an impeachment takes place in the House, that is sort of like a grand jury indictment that they decide on based only on is there probable cause, in other words, is the evidence more likely than not to show that he has committed an impeachable offense. In the Senate, we, we read in that the Senate will try all impeachments, indicating there's going to be a more detailed trial that will take place in the Senate. And the question that has now been raised is, does the Senate even have jurisdiction to try this impeachment because President Trump is no longer president? Well, I'm of the opinion that they do not have the power to raise this impeachment because he is no longer president. And the whole purpose of an impeachment proceeding was as a 
prerequisites to removing somebody from office. Now, arguably, the House did have jurisdiction, although they didn't have grounds. They didn't have jurisdiction because he was going to—he was president, and he was going to be president for about another week after that proceeding took place. But once he left office, I don't think any jurisdiction exists at all after that. And anyway, we can take a look at what the Constitution says here, and we've already seen that the Senate shall have sole power to try all impeachments. Further, that they will be on oath or affirmation when they do so, and that when the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. But he's not the President any longer, so does that apply? Well, they've decided that the Chief Justice will not preside, and I don't think he wanted to preside, and that Senator Aiken of Vermont will preside instead. And then it goes on to say that it takes a concurrence of two-thirds of the senators in order to convict, which will lead them to some kind of punishment being imposed. Now, without that two-thirds, then they're not going to be able to convict. And already, 45 senators have said, we don't believe there is jurisdiction to do this in the first place. So it looks like they're going to be very far short of the two-thirds. And of the remaining 55, that doesn't mean that all of these are necessarily in favor of taking action and convicting in the Senate. Senator Joe Manchin, for example, of West Virginia, has expressed some serious doubts about this, as has Senator Senema of Arizona. And of the Republican, the five Republicans that have not joined with the 45, we don't know for sure how all of those are going to stand yet either. So it doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere. But we're going to be taking a break, and as soon as the break is done, let's look at what they could do if they decided to go ahead and convict. Okay. And maybe maybe as we examine that, because this is the question I'm going to have for you the other side of the break, is what do they stand to gain? If, if it's all for show, I, I, there has to be some reason. We all have something that motivates our actions, and I'm just I'm curious what it is that could possibly be motivating um, you know, those who are, are pushing this the hardest. We'll take our quick break. We'll be back on Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo right after this. have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Lucy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I would seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 
The Rocket Mortgage Super Bowl Squares Sweepstakes is back. It's the largest official game of Super Bowl Squares ever with millions of dollars in prizes. And best of all, it's free to enter. Every score change, someone wins $50,000. Just enter for free at rocketmortgagesquares.com and it could be you. Touchdowns, field goals, safeties, extra points. Every single score change will draw one lucky winner from the square to win $50,000. Plus, two grand prize winners will win a half a million dollars they could use toward their dream home. One way to enter, two ways to win. See rules and enter for free at rocketmortgagesquares.com. Then tune into the Super Bowl on February 7th to see if you bring home some dough. Rocket Mortgage, official mortgage sponsor of Super Bowl 55. No purchase necessary. Legal residents of 50 U.S. and D.C. of age of majority. Ends 2-4-2021, 11-59 p.m. Eastern. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. The NFL entities as defined in the official rules of not offered or sponsored this promotion in any way. I'm Dr. Baker, an ER physician. If you're having leg pain, swelling, or redness, but haven't talked to your doctor yet, don't wait. This could be deep vein thrombosis a blood clot which could travel to your lungs and lead to a pulmonary embolism, which could cause chest pain or discomfort or difficulty breathing and be deadly. Your symptoms could mean something serious, so don't wait. Talk to a doctor right away by phone, online, or in person. Brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And we have been talking about current events in the first segment. Colonel, I'd like to, to give you a chance to kind of finish up. Uh, um, so the, the, the impeachment question now is in the Senate. You mentioned that really th- there's not much that can be accomplished by going ahead with these impeachment proceedings. And, and the question I have for you is what could possibly be in it? for those who continue to push for it other than maybe bragging rights is is there is there is there something they stand to gain from this very very little as i see it in fact it looks to me like this could very much reverberate in favor of president trump because as these issues are debated in the senate i'd like to think some of the facts will come out one of the questions that we raised here is did president trump believe in good faith that there were irregularities and illegalities in the election. And if you look, for example, at the lawsuits that has been filed by the Donald J. Trump for President campaign versus Bukvar in Pennsylvania, and this is currently still pending in the U.S. Supreme Court, and we have an amicus brief that we filed in support of President Trump here, but that if you look through that lawsuit, 267 pages consisting of affidavits and other sorts of things, I think at the very least you have to say that there is enough evidence that a reasonable person could come to that conclusion. And they would try to treat this today as though it's established fact that there wasn't. Several days ago, there was an interview with George Stephanopoulos, 
supposedly interviewing Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. And he begins the interview by asking, Senator, will you concede the fact that there was no fraud in this election? Well, obviously, his mind is made up, and he's not being a journalist. He's being an advocate. He picked on the wrong person. Senator Paul was very capable of responding and, in my opinion, dissecting Stephanopoulos very well and saying, you're not being a journalist. There are two sides to this, and then went on to demonstrate the facts that would support what President Trump concluded. But then another question they need to look at, whether those who entered the Capitol were a separate group of extremists or were they representative of those who gathered at the rally, and what, if any, role persons associated with Antifa played in inciting and participating in this entry to the Capitol, and whether those who entered the Capitol had left the Stop the Steel rally early or whether they'd even attended it at all, whether they'd even heard the president's address, whether the barricades of the Capitol had been moved aside, and if so, by whom, and why, and whether some of those who entered the Capitol building believed in good faith that they were free to enter because the barricades had been set aside, what role, if any, the Capitol Police and other government officials played in either preventing or facilitating the break-in, and noting that we don't even have indictments of these people yet. And yet, we've already impeached the president without giving him a lawyer, without calling any witnesses in the House. Well, the Senate will conduct a more thorough trial, it appears, and these issues will be discussed more thoroughly. But uh, get to your question now. Suppose that they do decide to go ahead with this. What do they hope to gain by it? Well, there's only two things that the Senate can do if they decide to convict. And again, they have to convict by a two-thirds vote, and they're nowhere close to that. I see no possibility that they're going to get any more than what maybe a bare majority, possibly, but nowhere close to two-thirds. But if they do, then there are two things that they can do. They can, number one, they can remove him from office. And obviously, they can't do that because he has already left office, or they can bar him permanently from seeking any public office again. And that's probably what they really want to do. And there are a few establishment Republicans that seem to like that idea too, because <laughs> they would see that as eliminating a possible threat within the Republican Party to them. But I'd only say, number one, that is not a basis for impeaching somebody if there are no actual grounds for impeachment. <clears throat> those, <clears throat> me. those grounds, once again, are treason. This isn't treason, it isn't even sedition, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Even if you say the president's speech was unwise, it isn't a high crime, it isn't a misdemeanor, it isn't bribery, it isn't treason. And so they don't have grounds in the first place. But as far as removing the president from office, well, we already said that can't be done. As far as saying he can't ever run again, frankly, I rather doubt that he is going to seek another term or seek another office. I think rather he will see his role more as a king maker than as a king. And I think he can be very effective in that role. But that seems to be what they want. Now, do they have the authority to do this? I would say no. I'll give you a couple examples. On July 7th of 1797, 
the House impeached a U.S. senator, Senator Blunt of Tennessee. But before the Senate tried the impeachment, he had already left the Senate. He'd been expelled from the Senate pursuant to another provision. And so the Senate simply dismissed the whole case, saying that they lacked jurisdiction. That seems to be a pretty good precedent to follow. And nearly always, when we've had cases of somebody being impeached and then a person leaving public office, the Senate has said that they don't have jurisdiction. A case involving a Judge Mark Delahaye in 1873 or Judge English in 1926, Judge Kent in 2009. But now we have one case where arguably there could be the opposite precedent, and that is the case of Secretary of War William Belknap in 1876. The House sought to impeach him, and just minutes before the House was going to vote, Belknap submitted his resignation. Well, the House said that he had submitted his resignation solely to evade impeachment, so they went ahead and impeached him anyway. He then went to the Senate, and the Senate, by a bare majority, concluded that they did have jurisdiction to try this, but they fell short of the two-thirds to convict. We have a couple other cases involving persons who were removed from office and then subsequently barred from holding public office again. Those are West Humphreys in 1862, Robert Archibald, in 1913, Thomas Porteous in 2010, all three federal judges. And in these, with the exception of Archibald, this was done by a two-thirds vote. In the case of Archibald, they did it by a simple majority after having two-thirds voting to convict. But he never challenged this in court, nor did Belknap ever challenge this in court. And so all we have right now is a precedent from the Senate. And that may carry some weight, but it's not the same thing as a landmark Supreme Court decision. If by any chance the Senate were to bar him from holding public office, I would feel quite certain that President Trump would appeal this to the U.S. Supreme Court and that the court would rule that the Senate did not have any authority to do this. All they seek to do here is to embarrass President Trump and to tarnish his image. I don't think they're going to succeed in this. So far, the polls indicate that, if anything, it has helped his popularity. And so I don't think they're going to achieve anything at all. But it is a charade simply to try to impress the public with something that I don't think the public is so far very impressed. And we were so impressed with them up to this point. <laughs> Not. Okay. We will About take 11% approval rating. <laughs> I mean, that even used car salesmen are looking on in pity, going, wow, those, those poor guys. All right, we've, we've got to take a very quick break here. We are, uh, again, uh, with Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We'll be back right after these messages.
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I have one quick question just as, as follow-up. Um, so assuming that, uh, let's let's say that the impeachment goes through, uh, Trump, now as a private citizen, no longer as president, is impeached. Does this establish a precedent or does this uh, this carry forward any precedent that, that uh, basically a citizen, somebody who is not holding office, could be impeached likewise and thus prevented from ever holding public office again? It seems like that could become a tool um, if, if it were, were misused in that way. They could try to use it that way. I can only say that what Congress has done in the past is some degree of precedent, but it's not the same kind of precedent as if it were a court ruling. And again, the court has never ruled in this area. But as I said before, you know, of course, President Trump now has been impeached twice, but he has not been removed from office, wasn't removed the first time, in all probability will not be, well, can't be removed this time, and in all probability he will not be convicted in the Senate. But at any rate, if we're going to say that you can impeach retroactively like this, if you could impeach somebody who isn't even holding office anymore, well, then why can't they impeach George Washington because he didn't free his slaves on time? Or why can't they impeach Thomas Jefferson because he mentioned God several times in the Declaration of Independence? Why can't they impeach James Madison because he wrote that reactionary document to the Constitution? And so on through all history. I mean, this is just plain absurd. And I think more and more people are seeing it that way. And I think the radical efforts of the Democrats are going to be used against them. I think they're, they're already boomeranging against them. And one of the things about a revolution is that very commonly a revolution, once it gets on the revolutionary track, it starts going too far. We see that with the French Revolution. Yep. And in the French Revolution, of course, they started exterminating aristocrats. And then they turned on each other. Danton, one of the revolutionaries, was led to the guillotine. guillotine. And as he did, his last words as he's going to the guillotine were, Robespierre will follow me. And yes, very shortly thereafter, they turned on Robespierre, and he too went to the guillotine. We look to the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, in which it started out with the moderate Mensheviks, and then eventually the Bolsheviks threw them out of power. Revolutions, as they get going, tend to become more and more extreme. And Samuel Eliot Morrison of Harvard made the observation when he, an article that he titled The Conservative American Revolution, in which he said that the success of the American Revolution is that the framers stopped where they knew they should. They could have gone a lot farther than they did, but they stopped at the point they did. And Alexander Hamilton, in fact, made this statement shortly after the war was over with. He said, property is in the same hands. He said, local offices are the same. Nothing has really changed except the seat of government. And I think he would have agreed thoroughly with Morrison when Morrison called it the conservative American Revolution, which is why it turned out to be such a success and so many others have been an abject failure. Well, one of the things that resulted in part from the events that took place at the Capitol on January 6th was that when it came time for the inauguration, we saw some 20,000 National Guard troops that were 
sent to Washington, D.C. to keep order. Now, that brings up something that we have been looking at here as we go through our regular study of the Constitution. And the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the power of Congress over foreign affairs. And we've seen that that is a power that is shared with the president. The president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, but the Congress will raise and support armies. The Congress will provide and maintain a navy. The Congress will make rules for the government or regulation of the forces and so on. And so the power over the armed forces is a power that is shared between the Congress and the president. But then we get to the National Guard. We started talking about this last week. And the National Guard, power over the National Guard is shared between the president and the Congress and the states. And that's why we don't just have a National Guard. We have the Alabama National Guard, the Utah National Guard, and National Guards of all 50 states because they are primarily a state entity. And yet the power over them is a power that is shared in all three of these places, Congress, the President, and the states. Now, we refer to the National Guard as the organized militia. Federal statute refers to them as the organized militia and refers to the rest of the population that is not in the Guard as the unorganized militia rest of the population of a certain age and being able-bodied. Anyway, so that includes all of us. If we're not in the Guard, then we are part of this unorganized militia, according to the Constitution, according to federal statute, also according to the statutes and constitutions of most of our states, if not all of them. Anyway, so when the National Guard is called up by the governor, they may be called up to perform various duties in the state, like if there's an insurrection in the state, rioting in the state, or very commonly they're called up today for natural disasters like a hurricane or an earthquake or matters such as this. And anyway, but the federal government has power here too, and the militia can be called forth to execute the laws of the Union, to suppress insurrections, and to repel invasions. And also we read that there is power in Congress over the National Guard to provide, and this again, we're getting back to section eight of article one, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States. In other words, the, the Guard can be governed by Congress and by the president when they've been called to federal service, as they are often called to go to Afghanistan or to Iraq or various other places such as this. But still, there is state authority and there has been conflict for a long time between governors and the federal government over who has authority in this area. And one thing that happened back in the 1950s with Suez Crisis, and National Guard was called up to come to the aid of our country in the Suez crisis there in the Middle East. And several governors complained, you're calling up our National Guard, who's gonna man our armories? Who's gonna take care of us if we have an emergency when we're called up? So they passed the National Defense Force Act at that time that provides that each state can have what is sometimes called a state defense force. 
sometimes called a state guard. And this state defense force or state guard is to the National Guard sort of like, let's say, the Air Force Reserve is to the Air Force, that they supplement them when they're overextended or called out of state. But now we see a crisis that's come up with these 20,000-some guardsmen that have been called to supposedly protect the nation at the time of this inauguration. And there were concerns that apparently when they were called to federal service there that they forgot to provide proper accommodations for them and they were sleeping in parking lots and so on. President Trump opened up the hotel for them to stay in and so on. And several congressmen let them stay in their offices. But as a result of this, several governors, the governor of Texas, the governor of Florida said, I am calling back my guard. Do they have the authority to call, recall their guard back to the state if they've been called to federal service? The answer to that question is unclear, but it appears to be that they can be held in federal service over the objection of their governor only if the Insurrection Act is invoked, which I don't believe it has been so far. So I would say that Governor DeSantis and the governor of Texas were within their authority in calling back their National Guards, and sounds like they did so with good reason. All right, we've got uh, got about a minute left in this segment, uh, Colonel. Uh, this is this is really great um, insight into the current situation. How militarized is Washington D.C. right now? I've I've heard that some of the guard units were were going to be brought home. Has anybody been been uh, brought home at this point, or do they still have you know um, thousands of of troops there in in the nation's capital? My understanding is that they don't have the same strength as they had on Inauguration Day, but that there still are thousands of troops there. That's my understanding. I got to tell you, it was a really uh, strong feeling of cognitive dissonance to uh, to hear the various news talking heads pronounce, you know, oh, once again, we see the majesty of our system's peaceful transfer of power uh, where, where everything was barricaded off and there's soldiers, as far as the eye can see, I was like... This one looks different, but... Here's something that was not reported, too, although I've seen the clip of it, and that's that several of these guard units, as the presidential caravan was taking place, turned their backs as a unit, turned their backs to the president, which demonstrates how they really felt. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. This is Constitution Classroom. The Rocket Mortgage Super Bowl Squares Sweepstakes is back. It's the largest official game of Super Bowl Squares ever with millions of dollars in prizes. And best of all, it's free to enter. Every score change, someone wins $50,000. Just enter for free at RocketMortgageSquares.com and it could be you. Touchdowns, field goals, safeties, extra points. Every single score change will draw one lucky winner from the square to win $50,000. Plus, two grand prize winners will win a half a million dollars they could use toward their dream home. One way to enter, two ways to win. See rules and enter for free at RocketMortgageSquares.com. Then tune into the Super Bowl on February 7th to see if you bring home some dough. Rocket Mortgage, official mortgage sponsor of Super Bowl 55. No purchase necessary. Legal residents of the 50 U.S. and D.C. of age of majority. Ends 2-4-2021, 11-59 p.m. Eastern. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. The NFL entities as defined in the official rules have not offered or sponsored this promotion in any way. 
pounds and pounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Dixie and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Hi, I'm Wade Alaroot. Recently, John and Chelsea Jubilee with Energized Health were guests on my show, sharing their breakthrough science of intercellular hydration. The results? People lose fat fast while still being able to eat many of the foods they love. You can too. Plus, supercharge your energy, boost your immune system, and dramatically increase your brain function. You'll look and feel years younger. It's all simple and natural without painful exercise. How do I know? Because I'm about a third of the way through my 88 days on the program, and I've already lost 25 pounds of fat. I'm now getting hydrated at the cellular level. But don't just take my word for it. Go to EnergizedHealth.com and check out hundreds of amazing testimonials. Right now, for the first time ever, Energized Health is offering a buy one, get one free special. Take advantage of this life-changing opportunity for you and someone you love. Buy one, get one free. Call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. Or go to EnergizedHealth.com. Two for one. That's EnergizedHealth.com. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. We are in our final segment with Colonel John Eidsmo, your host. He is from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, we've we've covered a lot of current events. Uh, what would you like to do with our remaining time today, Colonel? Let's continue our discussion of Article 1, Section 8. And this, again, is the article by which we, the people, through our Constitution, have delegated certain powers to Congress. Now, the powers they've delegated are sometimes divided into 18 separate clauses. But if you look to a constitution and you see those clauses numbered one through 18, you need to remember that those numbers have been supplied later, that the framers, when they drafted the constitution itself, did not number these clauses at all. But anyway, the clause that is numbered as clause 17 is to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of the government of the United States, or to exercise like authority over all places purchased by consent of the legislature of a state, in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. A couple things interesting there. First of all, this authorizes the creation of a district the District of Columbia. And part of the reason for this is there was concern, well, do we want the capital to continue to be in Pennsylvania? And wouldn't that give Pennsylvania an undue influence over what goes on in government? Or should it be in a southern state like Virginia? Or should it be up in New England? And because of rightful jealousy among the states of guarding their 
capital from undue influence, they chose to have a separate area as it is set forth here. And of course, they secured this area between Maryland and Virginia that we call the District of Columbia. Now, in the 1790s, Congress then passed an act authorizing the president, President Washington, to appoint a commission, a commission that would lay out a plat for this capital city, the District of Columbia, and the president did so. The person that he named, Dulesis, I believe was his name. Actually, I'm not sure of that, but anyway, he had been a friend of Washington's during the War for Independence, and when he laid out the plat, it had one prominent place that was set aside within this plat as place for a great national church. And this church would be a church where civic, solemn civic occasions would take place. Congress accepted the plat, and they changed the location of the church. They kept the idea that we'll have a national church. We call it the National Cathedral today. They changed the location, but it's still within D.C. But that would certainly demonstrate that they didn't intend an absolute separation of church and state. It also goes on to say that the Congress has the power here in Section 8, Clause 17, to exercise authority over places purchased by the consent of the legislature, in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. In other words, to establish military installations at various places. Raises an interesting issue with the war between the states. When South Carolina seceded, they said, well, when we seceded, then that meant that Fort Sumter, which we had originally given the federal government authority over, we take that with us, and the federal government no longer has any authority over Fort Sumter. Well, the federal government said they did, and when the federal government then, under Lincoln's order, began to bring in armaments to fortify Fort Sumter, then, of course, the Confederacy began its bombardment on Fort Sumter, raises the constitutional issue, when the state seceded, if they had the power to secede, did they have the power to take Fort Sumter with them in that secession? Another question that arises here is, does this include, when it says all other needful buildings, would that include national parks? Possibly. Anyway, and then we go on to the last clause that is sometimes called the elastic clause, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. We call this the necessary and proper clause. And sometimes it's called the elastic clause because it can be stretched. It can be stretched, but it cannot be created new out of whole cloth. In other words, some would try to say that the necessary and proper clause simply means that if Congress doesn't have the power to do something under any other provision of the Constitution, then it fits here. No, it doesn't. The necessary and proper clause exists only to carry into execution the foregoing powers or other powers vested in this Constitution. In other words, before they can use the necessary and proper clause, they have to show that they have power to do what they're going to do under another clause. For example, we saw earlier that Congress has the power to create 
post offices and post roads. Doesn't say they have the authority to hire mail carriers or the authority to print stamps or buy scales or things like this. But I think we would agree that those things are necessary and proper for operating a postal system. And so that would fit under the necessary and proper clause. But you can't use the necessary and proper clause to justify something that has no authority whatsoever in any other portion of the Constitution. Anyway, all of that brings us then to the close of this very, very important article, Article 1, Section 8, one of the most important articles in the entire Constitution, the article by which we empower Congress to do what it does. And I recall having a discussion with a member of the Sierra Club, as a matter of fact, and I support the idea of conservation, although I don't like their view that they should be able to give all power to the federal government just for conservation purposes. They're still subject to constitutional restraints. Well, this Sierra Club official was telling me these things that we need Congress to pass, and I just asked him, well, where does Congress get the authority to, to do these things? And he didn't understand my question. We went back and forth on the question, and he says, I don't think you're understanding me here. We're talking about laws. Congress has the authority to pass laws. Is it, you mean they have the authority to pass any laws? Well, any laws that are authorized by the Constitution. And I said, well, that's my whole point. The Congress has the authority to pass laws that are specified in Article 1, Section 8. Can you show me where in Article 1, Section 8, Congress has the authority to pass the law that you're asking me to call my congressman to urge him to support? Well, he said, well, I, I've, I've got a lot of things I've got to do. I don't have time to discuss this right now. I said, well, now you called me. I didn't call you. I listened patiently to you. You're not willing to answer my question? Well, he quickly went on to somebody else, and I got no further calls from him on that. But, and he's not the only one by any means that misunderstands this. But we, they think Congress has the authority to pass any law that the Constitution does not expressly forbid. No, it's the other way around. Congress has the authority to pass only laws that the Constitution authorizes. And you can say that includes the power to pass laws that it expressly authorizes, and maybe by the necessary and proper clause, the power to pass laws that it impliedly authorizes. But unless it is authorized expressly or impliedly, Congress doesn't have any further authority to pass laws. And that's where the 10th Amendment comes in once again, that limits not only Congress, but the other branches of the federal government as well. Where, and the 10th Amendment is a cornerstone of what limited government is all about. 10th Amendment, of course, simply says that the, that the power is not delegated in this Constitution to the federal government, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And so anytime a congressman says, show me where the Constitution says I can't pass this law, he's got it all turned around. He has to show where the Constitution says he can pass a law or he doesn't have that power. And I'm sure in the next four years, we're gonna see that issue being raised over and over again. And interestingly, Senator Schumer has now said he would like President Obama, or I'm sorry, President 
Biden to declare an environment emergency because then he'll be able to do by executive authority what he wouldn't have to go to Congress to do. Well, that's even scarier than saying Congress has unlimited authority. But the Constitution is going to be challenged a great deal in the next four years, and I'm sure that here at the Foundation for Law, we, Moral Law, we will not lack in cases where our expertise will be relied on to defend the Constitution. Thank you so much, Colonel Eidsmo. This has been Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. <laughs>